Hello and welcome to the year's first episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. We're absolutely not going to predict that this will finally be the year when things get better because past experience absolutely is a guide to future performance and the first weeks of 2022 seem so far to be bearing this out. But we'll begin today by necking Jaeger bombs because it is a work event after all and asking what madness is in store for DC in 2022. There's consolidation, tax relief reform, ESG, CDC. Uh, We'll ask our experts what they predict will be the biggest themes for the year ahead. Next up, we've had no giant asteroid strike, plagues of locusts, zombie apocalypse, mass unemployment, punishment budgets, capital flight, brain drains, or World War III in spite of Brexit. And now the Pensions Insurance Corporation has been bold enough to risk excommunication by suggesting that Brexit might, in fact, present some opportunities for UK investors, not least in the form of reform of Solvency II. We'll ask what that reform might achieve and whether the right reform will be achieved. And then finally, Parliament has been debating the merits of extending auto-enrolment to 18-year-olds. We can't help but note that this is a moot point anyway if we can't first make them employable, but we'll ask whether broadening auto-enrolment on its 10th anniversary is a good idea. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter of Pensions Experts. I'm joined today by Darren Philp, Director of Policy and Communication at Smart Pension, and by Mike Ambury, partner in the DC Consulting Team at Hyman's Robertson. And thank you both very much for joining me we can begin with DC. Um, I'll grant that maybe with the exception of CDC, that list I gave above does make it feel a little bit like Groundhog Day again. Uh, But some of them are developing trends. Our colleague Stephanie Hawthorne writes that new value for money regulations could be the catalyst, for instance, that sparks wind-ups and mergers and generally proves a boon for consolidation of the others, tax relief, auto-enrollment. Will we see much change this year? Darren, I'll come to you first on that one. Where do you see DC going in 2022? It's got a difficult year to follow, hasn't it, Ben? Like We had goodness knows how many consultations and initiatives that were launched last year. And um, I'm just wondering whether the government will sort of keep up the pace because it wasn't quite a consultation a week, but it wasn't far off that. Um, Obviously, that was covering the whole of the pensions landscape, not just DC. But there's been a lot of activity over the past year. And, you know, I, for one, I'm I'm hoping for a bit of stability um, so we can actually sort of take stock and just think about where we are. You mentioned value for money, and we've obviously got new regulations coming in and schemes, you know, focusing more on reporting value for money. And we know that we've got the regulators and the, the TPRs and the FTAs consultation looking at value for money. And I'm hoping that notwithstanding the fact that you know one of the first pieces of pensions news we had this year was about charges and the implementation of the de minimis on charges, actually, you know, could 2022 be the year that we finally focus on value for money and get away from the sort of, you know, the sole obsession of, of cost. Cost is obviously important when it comes to pensions. We don't want people to be ripped off. We've now got a very competitive environment. And I think that if we want to sort of achieve better outcomes, if we want to look at investment innovation, if we want providers and schemes to really invest in their proposition, we need to sort of fundamentally shift the debate onto value for money and work out metrics and work out frameworks that can really deliver fair and equitable comparisons of value for money. Um, so we're not just sort of focusing on a race to the bottom on, on, on cost. So I'm hoping that, you know, that will be a theme of the year. And we we'll obviously will be waiting to hear what the TPR and the FCA say in response to their joint consultation on that. When it comes to value for money, consolidation will obviously be a key theme. And I think, you know, we've already seen quite a lot of consolidation in the DC space. 
and Mike will know a lot more about this than I do, um, given his role and stuff. But, you know, um, with all these additional reporting requirements that are coming on pension schemes, you know, it's not cheap and it's not easy. Actually, it's blooming difficult now to run a pension scheme. And it should be. Yeah, you know, we're looking after people's money. We're looking after people's money long term. And actually, we need the highest standards of governance. We need the highest standards of um, administration. We need to be providing that value. But increasingly, this will cause um, trustees of smaller schemes across the piece to sort of think, is it worth the candle now? You know, can I really afford to do the best for my members? And can we afford to keep running this DC scheme? So I think we'll touch on some other topics, I'm sure. But value for money and consolidation are certainly high up on my list. We'll do set dashboards slightly separately because I think it's also going to be a big year for pensions dashboards as well. Excellent. Yes, we can certainly come back to dashboards. But Mike, if I can bring you in here in that case, obviously one way of stressing the importance of value for money is by making everything else much more expensive to run. Where are we with the, the metrics that Darren mentioned, You know, the, the need to make sure it's, it's possible to actually say what value for money definitively is across the board and make it comparable? How, how are developments along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of the consultations through the last year, as uh, Darren said, and I do wonder through the pandemic whether... Uh, is giving people more time on their hands to work from home. Therefore, there's more consultations. I thoroughly say, let's all get back to work and have a little bit more time uh, and less consultations. So let's work alongside that. But prescriptively, um, and it is becoming more prescriptive, what does value for member actually mean? That's yielding itself through. um, What does it really mean for us in the industry? It's more time spent in actually accounting for that and actually providing evidence for that. It will also stimulate as Darren probably alluded to as well, a movement in the market. We saw last year, we've seen in the last few years, movement towards master trust, occupational schemes, schemes of particular value, and equally GPPs transitioning through to toward master trust. Um, Do we expect to see more of that? Yes. I equally think it will precipitate maybe a change in the master trust market itself as well and drive competition there. There'll be a little bit of Darwin coming in survival of the fittest and the quality and providers in the market will be asked to probably absorb will probably take other providers in the market and we will see an advent of the more super type of uh, provider market infrastructure in place over the course of the next year i think that is driven through accounting for what is value richer member experience going forward One additional thing that I'd like to pick up on, will it be the year that everything comes together to Darren's point of value and subjective to value? It isn't a race to bottom on charges. Spend a lot of time looking for and part of what Solvency 2 will look for. Where's the investment? Where's the investment in UK infrastructure? Where's the investment in sustainable investment, climate change and commitments that not sure COP did anything to really, I don't know what were the outtakes of that. Somebody could probably summarise it in less words than I have for it. But how do we do that in the pensions industry? We've got a good clamour for that right now. Can we make it all come together well where the consumer actually benefits and where the industry really does give individuals what they need at heart? I think that's right, Mike. And I think, you know, the focus on investment, investment innovation, investment strategies really does need to come to the fore. You know, like you, I don't think that COP26, you know, had the same 
I don't know, gravitas or big announcement like the Paris conference did where we got the Paris Accord and stuff. However, it did focus minds. And, you know, the, the chatter within the pensions industry and the things that Ben and his colleagues have been writing about is increasingly being focused on ESG, on climate. I think if, if nothing else, it's sparked a debate um, within the pensions industry and actually it sparked, sparked action within the pensions industry to ensure that as large institutional investors, you know, we can use some of that leverage and, and buying power that we have to make a real difference when it comes to investments. So, you know, I think that we had a lot of pledges last year for the Make My Money Matter campaign in terms of, yes, you know, schemes going to be achieving zero net zero by 2050. Um, halving emissions by 2030. And I think, you know, we're going to be moving out of pledge mode into, okay, you know, schemes, you've said you're going to meet these targets. How are you going to meet them? And I don't think anyone can expect everyone to have every I dotted and T's crossed because investments change all the time and strategies will evolve over time. But I think that now we've had um, a lot of the noise around climate and ESG and impact investment, I think increasingly, you know, if you're doing your job properly, Ben, you'll be asking schemes, you'll be asking providers what they are actually doing to drive forward some of this agenda. And I think that's going to be quite exciting. I think Mike's totally right when it comes to consolidation. It's not just single employer trust and the small occupational schemes. I think there will be wider consolidation in the market. We obviously had master trust authorization and the introduction of that a few years ago, and that forced a, a large degree of consolidation. I think we halved the number of master trusts. Just often ask me um, how many master trusts should there be? You know, how long is a piece of string? But I do think there'll be more consolidation in the market. And I think, you know, over the next couple of years or so, you'll see more mergers. You're, you know, you'll see an increased emphasis on scale and as part of that wider delivering value for money narrative. Just to add to that, if it's okay as well, Darren, the other things that I think will come in through the year will be it's not just about pensions anymore. I think it can be savings and it can be financial well-being. We know there's various different offerings by providers as well. To Ben's earlier point, welcome your thoughts, Ben. Where do, where do you think the year is going to go where people are, are starting to be back in workforces? We have the great resignation through last year. Um, you can choose where you want to go, but what does remuneration look like? Um, that's not suggesting you go and look at LinkedIn and get another job, Ben, or if it increases your wage, by all means, use this as a, as a good example. But I think we need to fresh things up. People will come back to jobs, whether that's in work or at home and whatever working life looks like going forward. But they need to be supported by corporate policies. And that dovetails back to the industry to say, how are you going to help me out? How am I going to save? Is it into a pension? We've got pressures over inflation coming through over the next year, being able to solve those and accommodate those. And perhaps that is the Jägermeister that you suggested earlier. I'm still waiting for my second shot. Excellent. Well, just before we move on from DC, I know, Darren, you mentioned dashboards uh, a little earlier on. The last time I remember covering dashboards, almost every time I remember covering dashboards, usually there's some talk about a further delay to their introduction. But I believe they're scheduled to launch next year, which means a lot of work has to be done this year. Will all of the work have been done this year, do you think? If we're talking this time next year, will we be in the place we need to be to see dashboards as they are supposed to be? Yeah, the dashboard has been a twinkling in the eye for quite some time now. And um, I always think back to, I think it was around 2016 when there was a Treasury Minister that said, we will have dashboards by the end of the year. 
And everyone thought at the time, this is slightly more complicated than that. And I think there's been a number of false starts on the dashboard over time. And, you know, this is a complicated project. You know, it's a big ecosystem that they have to develop, especially when considering that, you know, there's a lot of legacy pension systems out there. There's huge governance considerations. There's huge data considerations. And I'm certainly a dashboard glass half full person now that maps have sort of got to grips with this, put it into a proper program. And I've actually got a proper timetable against which we can judge delivery now. I think I've been chomping at the bit to have dashboards for years. I think they really will sort of change pensions for the better. But we are dealing with people's data. We are dealing with sensitive financial information. You know, would I accept a six month to a year delay on top of the timetable that we've got at the moment to get it right? Yeah, I would, because I think getting it wrong, we'd get it catastrophically wrong. That said, I think, you know, the program's in relatively good shape. We could always hope it would go faster. And there's going to be quite a few key dependencies that come out this year. So I'm not going to directly answer your question as to whether we'll have dashboards next year, but we'll have something next year. So hopefully quite soon, we're going to get the DWP regulations on the dashboard. So we actually know what we need to do as schemes and providers to be able to sort of patch into this sort of ecosystem that doesn't yet exist. I know the pensions minister is very keen that schemes prepare and clean up data and get dashboard ready. And I think there's something in that. Schemes should have good data. They should put efforts into improving data anyway. Dashboard is just another reason to move it up the priority list. But there is a key bus in some of this is that there's only so much schemes and providers can do to prepare until we've got the details. And we are waiting for those details. And there's, there'll be a consultation at some point soon, I'm imagining, on the regulations. You know, that will give us, you know, a much needed impetus into the work that we need to do as a provider to work out how we're going to patch into the ecosystem, the stuff that we're going to have to do. And I think that over the course of the year, you'll see activity, not just from the programme, but within providers really ramping up as well. So, yeah, so since we're on, on DC anyway, I mean, maybe it would make sense to talk about briefly about auto-enrollment and, and the expansion of that here. Obviously, last week saw a Conservative MP, Richard Holden, table a private member's bill in Parliament, which was aimed at expanding auto-enrollment to 18-year-olds as well as the low-paid. It's not a new proposal. There was a report in 2017 that estimated that abolishing the £10,000 earnings trigger and the £6,240 lower earnings limit for pension contributions, as well as reducing the age threshold, could see a full-time worker on the national living wage gain an extra £93,989 over their working lifetime, which is a 60% increase in their workplace uh, savings. Whether the bill actually accomplishes anything like that remains to be seen, because in the first place it requires our political masters to take time away from their boozy parties, uh, sorry, their boozy work events, to... uh, work out the practicalities. But um, what are the merits of, of this? Do you think it will happen? Is it an imminent change or is it still relatively fanciful? Mike, I'll begin with you on this one, if that's right. Yeah, no, it's something that we've looked at for quite a period of time. When you consider outcomes, the longer you say for, um, the better it is. Um, at the current time, why do we have areas of society that are not included by way of workforce? So whether, as you say, by age or by salary, you cannot be included through automatic enrolment. It's, a, it's an area where employers, quite rightly, don't have to contribute to someone's outcome at the point of retirement. That could theoretically create a you know ticking time bomb for individuals not being able to retire at a latter end. Why do why do we have that? 
should we have it? Do we need to have it? And that's the areas of the reform for me. It would make it a hell of a lot easier if everyone who was in workforce was automatically enrolled and encouraged to save with provisions from their employer. It could make it a lot more simplistic administratively um, to be able to do that. You have to consult on it. There's a huge amount of cost that comes with it, and um, particularly to employers that may well have gone through quite negative spiral over the pandemic period. So introducing this um, to certain sectors and those sectors where it will be introduced are the sectors where it will be the least popular. If you think about it, those levels of salary and those ages are probably areas of maybe hospitality or other areas by way of example that can least afford it at this time. So whilst it's a is a good idea and one that I would have thought pre-pandemic would be something we should have championed. It might be unpalatable at this point of time, but when does it become palatable? Um, there's other areas of individuals that aren't included there as well. Self-employed, anyone that's not saving enough for retirement should have to justify that um, either by tax return or some sort of justification of how are you affording your retirement income whether that's self-employed, needing to save more, so on and so forth. So I think there needs to be a sweeping measure, not only in terms of inclusion of everyone in, in saving towards retirement and how they're affording for that saving for retirement. It's like a lateral flow test. You either do it or not and be responsible on the back of it. You can then decide whether you go out to Australia and play tennis or not. So I'll make a political comment there as well. Um, I also think there's a separate issue for me as well, which is more fundamental. Is the level of contribution actually enough right now? We've spoken about 8% total contribution. We've indicated, PLSA have indicated for quite a period of time, it's not enough. We need to bump that up to a more substantial level to have um, a right of retirement that we need. So that, that would really be my comments. Will it come about this year? Don't think so, because we need to give employers enough time um, and we need to give all those that run within the industry enough time to adapt to it. But it'd be good to have illustration and um, I'm going to say the C words, consultation over that as soon as we can. Another one. Hooray. Fantastic. Uh, in which case, I think just in the name of time, we'll move on very quickly to Solvency 2. So just as it made no sense really for us to be protecting Spanish orange growers, for instance, with continent-wide citrus tariffs because the poles don't grow oranges, so the Pensions Insurance Corporation has suggested it doesn't make a huge amount of sense for us to be stifling our investors in insurance with EU regulations that are not built for the insurance market in this country. It's called on the government to take the once-in-a-generation chance to reform Solvency 2 to meet our specific needs uh, rather than the general needs of a continent which does have different beliefs about regulation and different needs regarding them. Should the opportunity be taken, the Pension Insurance Corporation suggests that the boon could be worth tens of billions in long-term investments to this country. And of course, that feeds back into the ESG points mentioned at the top, given that the government's very keen to tap DC schemes in particular for long-term investments uh, in the green recovery. And Darren, I'll begin with you on this one, if that's all right. Obviously, presumably Solvency 2 uh, everybody who's, who talks about it would acknowledge that it's done some good, but uh, I assume that the, the balance on the balance, uh, it's done more harm than good. Would that be a fair 
Well, I think um, I, I have to say we're um, we're a trust-based scheme, so we we're not caught by the Solvency Two regulations, thank goodness. But I remember working at the NAPF when it was the NAPF um, back at the, the start of the last decade, when there was moves to apply Solvency Two to DB pension funds, which would have been absolutely sort of catastrophic. And, you know, so I, would, I do remember Commissioner Barnier of Brexit negotiation fame, you know, really couldn't see why DB and occupational pension schemes more generally shouldn't be part of Solvency 2. And with various colleagues at the PLSA, we, we had to sort of really fight against um, those proposals at the time. But I think, you know, if you go back to Solvency 2, a lot of it was introduced after the financial crisis. And when you have regulation that follows a, a, a sort of once in a generation event, regulation tends to overcompensate so you know you you saw the financial crisis you saw the big risks that were exposed in very large financial organizations basically threatening the fabric of society you know i don't know if you've ever heard alistair darling talk about you know when he got phone calls from chairmen of various banks saying we're about to sort of you know run out of money for the cash machines but this was you know this was huge huge stuff and i think what you had with solvency too was you had the reaction to that and, you know, the political will, whether it be in the UK or more widely, to put consumer protection and financial stability absolutely to the fore. And that's right. And, and regulation is always a trade-off between security and um, risk. You know, you can quite easily regulate um, to be able to withstand a one in a thousand year event, but it means that you will not have any spare capital to do anything. So it's about proportionality. And I think I haven't seen the Pensions Insurance Corporation stuff, but what they're probably saying is they've overshot. They've overshot in that regulation. They've realised they've overshot. There's too much risk margin built into the Solvency 2 measures. And actually, have we got that risk reward or risk protection balance right? And could we put capital to better use if we tightened uh, or if we loosened the rules um, slightly and give people a slightly wider risk margin, say? So, you know, I don't know the details of Solvency 2. I couldn't tell you exactly what we should be arguing for. But there is always that balance between protection and innovation, you know, what you can do with that sort of wider capital. And I think if the government isn't looking at that now, especially um, given its wider noises, asking pension schemes to invest in building back better and all of that type of stuff, then you've got to ask, you know, what, you know, what's going on there. I understand they are looking at it, but this is an opportunity that they do need to take to unlock innovative capital within the UK. Excellent. And Mike, any closing thoughts on solvency to the merits of this reform? Because I suppose we are assuming that they do, in fact, reform it in the correct way. But do you think that's likely to happen? You'd hope that there's an aligned and evolved agenda. I think that's what Darren, to me, was saying there. If if we think the agenda is reinvesting, levelling up, investing in infrastructure within the UK, have the UK government now has its own powers that now isn't set relative to insurance companies across Europe. It's set relative to the UK. That was part of the reasons for Brexit. If we move that forward, aligning the agenda for investment within the UK, Solvency 2 updates to allow for investment within the UK on those particular structures will align all principles that the government want to achieve, that we all want to achieve, which is more sustainable investments, investment in UK infrastructure, which includes small businesses. So I think it's a good thing. Um, I think 
part of the consultation, as I understand from the government here, really does align all of those things together. And what PIC were saying for me was, actually, it brings good opportunity and potentially a once in a lifetime opportunity to actually think UK first um, in the way that we're operating as a UK PLC. Fingers crossed for that then. Well, that brings us to the close of the principal part of the programme. But since we were discussing earlier alternative, innovative retirement strategies that individual savers might use, we have an always a pensions angle, which might give some people some advice. I think, Darren, you had that for us this week. By all means, take it away. Well, first off, um, I'm not authorised or regulated to give advice. So, you know, you you need to sort of retract those comments, Ben, and put appropriate (laughs) risk warnings around um, this podcast. This is not financial uh, advice. But I was, um, you know, as as you get when you do one of these podcasts, you know, you always get sprung on you that they're going to ask for on a ways a pensions angle story. So, you know, what you'd end up doing is you frantically Google and try and find something at least half interesting. But I did find this chap that got covered in the, the Daily Telegraph earlier this year. I think it was on the 8th of January. And this and this guy has spent £20,000 on a model railway, building his Hornby set, you know, not just buying the locomotives, but building the train yards. There's a nice picture of, of, of a station. And even I'm looking at it now, there's um, even, you know, a model thing where they wash the trains and stuff. It's all quite fascinating. But he spent £20,000 on this. He owns more than 100 model locomotives. He started collecting this stuff 20 years ago. And actually, there's quite a, a secondary market in some of this stuff. And, and these things sort of do appreciate in value. So, you know, the strap line to this, and this is picked up in the article, is, you know, he's getting lots and lots of pleasure from the model train sets and, you know, buying and doing up these local locomotives and building nice railway sceneries. But also, it's going to fund his retirement. So it's not quite a Bitcoin story. And, you know, um, I don't know if RPMI would have anything to say about um, investing in model railways to to fund a pension scheme. But, you know, I thought it was quite nice in terms of, you know, um, combining a hobby with actually sort of thinking about your retirement as well. So, as you say, Ben, there's always a pensions angle in something. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the the end of the line, which I, I now regret having said. That brings us to the close of the programme. Thank you both to Darren and to Mike very much for joining us. Uh, Thank you to the audience for sticking with us. And we will be back again in two weeks time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.